Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I wish you all a very happy feast day. I'm sure many of you are aware that this is a special day dedicated to the Holy Cross, one of two in our Catholic tradition. The names of these feasts provide the name of this exhibit, Invention and Exaltation. The Invention of the Holy Cross, which is celebrated on May 3rd, commemorates events that occurred in the year of 326. St. Helen, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, traveled to Jerusalem to seek the true cross. One of the Jewish scholars of the city knew its location. This was a secret that had been passed down through his family since the time of the Passion. He revealed it to Helen after interrogation, and there three crosses were found. To distinguish the cross of Jesus Christ from the crosses of the two thieves, each was held over a corpse. The deceased came to life upon contact with the true cross. This St. Helen divided into three parts. One she sent to Rome, one to Constantinople, the third remained in Jerusalem. The man who revealed the location professed his faith. He later became a bishop and a martyr known today as Saint Kyriakos. The relics of our Lord's Passion occupy a place within Catholic tradition close to that of holy images. Comparable veneration is given to each and their histories are tightly interwoven. The invention of the Holy Cross inaugurated the first great era of Christian art. Christian art emerged from underground along with the sacred wood. As described by the art historian Emile Mal, I quote, the discovery of the Holy Sepulchre and the True Cross in 326 must be considered as one of the great events in the history of Christianity. It was seen as a genuine miracle. Constantine immediately had magnificent monuments built on the site of rediscovered Calvary. On the exact spot where the cross had been planted, the sacred spot regarded as the center of the world, a great cross was erected, encased in gold, and decorated with precious stones. Countless pilgrims from the remotest parts of the world flocked to Jerusalem. It was not enough for them to venerate the Holy Sepulchre. They visited all of the places consecrated by the Gospels, and everywhere they found magnificent basilicas. All of these buildings were decorated with mosaics. End quote. That, of course, is St. Helen. <laughs> Sacred Heart in the following era is confident, dogmatic, and grand. Its figures no longer wear the disguises of classical antiquity as they did in the art of the catacombs. Pilgrims to Jerusalem collected holy oil from the shrines in tiny flasks of cast metal or painted glass and wore them around their necks. These were decorated with the same images seen in the mosaics. Wooden stamps for pressing the images into the dough for eulogia bread were also common. Um, I was actually at the Cleveland Museum of Art um, on Saturday and saw several examples of all of these. Um, it is through portable objects such as these that the artistic traditions reach the ends of civilization. In the early 7th century, the army of the Persian king Crossroys took Jerusalem and carried away the relic of the true cross. 
According to the golden legend of Jacobus of Origine, I quote, Crossroys wanted to be worshipped as God. He built a gold and silver tower studded with jewels and placed within it images of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Bringing water to the top of the tower through hidden pipes. Do I need to fix that? <laughs> he poured down water as God pours rain, and in an underground cave, he had horses pulling chariots around in a circle to shake the tower and produce a noise like thunder. He sat on a throne in the shrine as the father, put the wood of the cross to his right in place of the sun, and a cock on his left in place of the Holy Spirit." End quote. The emperor Heraclius led a crusade to recover the relic of the true cross, depicted defeating an enemy general in single combat. <laughs> Victory having been achieved, Heraclius personally restored the relic to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Today's feast, the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, commemorates these events. I have a special devotion to both of these feasts. How beautiful it is that the Catholic Church celebrates the finding of things that have been lost and the reclaiming of things that have been stolen. This seems especially relevant in our own age. At times I feel that much of my religion has been lost or stolen from me. The Apostle Paul commands all Christians to stand fast and hold to the traditions they have learned. But where is a religious artist to stand when he has learned in one sense nothing at all? There is not now any tradition of sacred art that is handed down with a simple and ingenuous faith. Um, there's not really any common mind and spirit among the faithful that is moving them to build together over centuries great cathedrals. It's difficult enough to gather two or three who agree. Um, in a medieval monastic scriptorium or a lay painter's guild, no artist needed to question what he was taught or to defend it. In our time, artistic tradition is not a thing that's handed down so much as a thing that must be excavated. And once an artist begins to dig, he finds in a different sense altogether too much. The part of the Catholic Church's artistic heritage that has survived the centuries, you know, the rust and moth that consume the ravages of iconoclasts and revolutions, has been studied, documented, photographed, and at least in the form of digital images, made accessible as never before. Art museums, rare book libraries, and cathedral treasuries the world over now display their collections online. This is a boon to education and research. I rarely begin a drawing without first examining dozens of manuscript miniatures displayed in the digital scriptorium and panel paintings displayed in the Wikimedia Commons. This drawing of the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary borrows elements from paintings by Hans Holbein the Elder, <coughs> Elder, excuse me, Jan Polak, um, Hieronymus Bosch, Gerard David, Martin Schongauer, Ragier van der Weyden, and Nicolas Obelman. Two decades ago, I would have found maybe half of these paintings reproduced in the art books available to me. Two centuries ago, I would have needed to cross an ocean to see a single one of them. But in this superabundance of information, another problem emerges. Holy images are not lost, but reduced to triviality. Um, just about anybody in the world 
can download a high-quality digital photograph of the Cairo page from the Lindisfarne Gospels, or the Ghent altarpiece, or the incarnation window at Chartres. He can print it and hang it on his wall, or he can print it on a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a case of a phone. He can put it on Pinterest or Instagram or crop it to use as a title banner on a website or blog. This can become a means of constructing and projecting a persona, a means of saying, I am this sort of individual or this sort of Catholic because I like this sort of art. Um, what does selecting Fra Angelico say about him? What does selecting Caravaggio or William Bouvereau? Does putting one painting by each in his screensaver demonstrate his broadness of mind? And does adding one by Georges Rouault prove his uh, boldness? At that point, religious art ceases to be about God and his angels and his saints. It's not even about the artist who made it. It is about the man who chooses to like it. It's like a relic of the Holy Cross placed on a table to the right of a king's throne. It's not destroyed, it's not forgotten, but it's not exalted either. It's set beside rather than above us. In our time, I believe that invention and exaltation describe well the duties of a religious artist. Invention here has the older definition of the word. It does not mean creating from nothing, but rather finding. If the artistic traditions have been buried, my task is to discover them. If they have been stolen, my task is to reclaim them. Once they are found or reclaimed, my task is to bring them to their proper place and give them honor as high as my abilities make possible, that is, to exalt them. This is something like carrying the stolen relics back to Jerusalem, as Heraclius once did. But the Golden Legend also says, and I quote, Heraclius rode down the Mount of Olives, mounted on his royal palfrey and arrayed in imperial regalia, intending to enter the city by the gate through which Christ had passed on his way to crucifixion. But suddenly the stones of the gateway fell down and locked together, forming an unbroken wall. To the amazement of everyone, an angel of the Lord, carrying a cross in his hands, appeared above the wall and said, When the King of Heaven passed through this gate to suffer death, there was no royal pomp. He rode a lowly ass to leave an example of humility to his worshippers. With those words, the angel vanished. The emperor shed tears, took off his boots, and stripped down to his shirt, received the cross of the Lord into his hands, and humbly carried it toward the gate. The hardness of the stones felt the force of a command from heaven, and the gateway raised itself from the ground and opened wide to allow passage to those entering." End quote. Here is a lesson for those who seek, as I do, to reintroduce the traditions. No project, even a righteous one, will meet divine favor unless it is undertaken with humility. It is not the artist that is to be arrayed, celebrated, and exalted. God would rather brick him out of the holy city than admit him to the ruin of his soul. I often quote one of the fathers of the Second Council of Nicaea, which was convoked in the year 787 to end the first iconoclast crisis. He said, the execution alone belongs to the painter. The selection and arrangement of subject belong to the fathers. 
I consider the selection and arrangement of subject that belong to the fathers to be something like a relic, and the execution that belongs to the painter to be something like the making of a reliquary. Artistry without tradition is like an empty reliquary, beautiful perhaps, but unworthy of veneration. Tradition without artistry is like a relic kept in a cardboard box. It's worthy of veneration, but it deserves better treatment. I believe that the traditions of sacred art deserve exaltation for the very same reason the relics of our Lord's passion deserve it, because they touched God. Few ever have understood the power of touching God so well as that woman afflicted for 12 years by an issue of blood, who but touched the hem of his garment and was made whole. This woman, traditionally called Saint Veronica, is an important figure in the history of sacred art. Early ecclesiastical historians attest that she erected a statue in her home city of Peneus commemorating the miraculous cure. Eusebius of Caesarea recounts, I quote, there stood on a lofty stone at the gates of her house, a bronze figure of a woman, bending on her knee and stretching forth her hands like a suppliant. While opposite to this, there was another of the same material, an upright figure of a man clothed in comely fashion in a double cloak and stretching out his hand to the woman. This statue, they said, bore the likeness of the Lord Jesus. And it was in existence even to our day, so that we saw it with our own eyes when we stayed in the city." End quote. The statue, the statue in question was mutilated during the reign of Julian the Apostate. Its whereabouts are unknown. The name Veronica means true image, which suggests that it may have the nature of a title here. It's a name shared with another woman who touched God. <laughs> This Saint Veronica pressed a cloth to the face of Christ as he walked to Calvary, a true image was left upon it. I am amused to know that even though monumental sculpture fell out of practice in the Catholic Church until the early Gothic era, and even though printmaking did not flourish as a sacred art until the late Middle Ages, both forms of art were present at the very beginning of Christianity. As for painting, numerous works are attributed to the evangelist Luke, including ones still venerated in Rome, Smolensk, and Częstochowa. Now, some skepticism about these attributions is justified. In certain pictures, the analysis of materials does not indicate a first century origin. However, it certainly is plausible that holy images venerated today are copies of a Lucan original or copies of copies. The conviction of the faithful in patristic and medieval times was that Christian art is as old as the church. This conviction does not depend on any specific painting's authenticity. I, um, I sometimes say that I am a spirit of Nicaea too Catholic. That's a, that's a joke. It's point being that I keep that ecumenical council at the forefront of my mind, living as I do in a time similar to the iconoclastic crises. I do not seek to interpret its doctrine rega regarding art beyond what its words actually say. Their words are really 
bold enough. Um, its dogmatic decree, among other things, states, and I quote, those therefore who dare to think or teach otherwise, or as wicked heretics to spurn the traditions of the church and to invent some novelty, or else to reject some of those things which the church has received, the book of the gospels, or the image of the cross, or the pictorial icons, or the holy relics of a martyr, or evilly and sharply to devise anything subversive of the lawful traditions of the Catholic Church. If they be bishops or clerics, we command that they be deposed. If religious or laics, that they be excommunicated. I do not think that anyone, and that's the end of the quote, um, I do not think that anyone can honestly interpret those words that refer to the image of the cross or the pictorial icons or the holy relics of a martyr in an abstract sense. They refer to cults of devotion, to traditions that exist in fact. These may not be inerrant or infallible, but they nonetheless have a permanent content that endures through the centuries. They cannot be insulted, discarded, or remade entirely without ruinous effect. This is a recent drawing of mine, uh, too recent for me to have issued a relief print of it, which is why it's not in the gallery here. Um, its central image depicts a miraculous vision of Christ, surrounded by the instruments of his passion that St. Gregory the Great saw while celebrating Mass. More broadly, the drawing is about Christian knowledge, how and whence it is received. St. Gregory was the Bishop of Rome, and thus the inheritor of the authority of Saints Peter and Paul whom I drew in the bottom corners. He is one of the four great Latin church fathers. He was the codifier of the Roman mass and its music, which is why I wrote the words Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus in the Badapage, together with the chant nooms from the Misa Kyrie Fons Bonitatis. Shown here, St. Gregory is the recipient of a mystical vision, one of those divine reminders of a holy truth in this event, the self-sameness of the man of sorrows and the sacrament of the altar. But this drawing is not meant to suggest that Christian knowledge is altogether dependent on personalities so great as St. Gregory. So great a pope, theologian, liturgist, and mystic may never again walk the earth until the resurrection of the flesh. Nor is it meant to suggest that Christian knowledge is altogether dependent on a privileged communication between Christ and his vicar on earth. Events such as the miraculous mass of St. Gregory are worthy of artistic treatment precisely because they are extraordinary. Fundamentally, the reason we know anything about Jesus Christ is that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended into hell, rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven, is because these things actually happened and someone saw or heard them happen. Before they were kept as scriptures, um, before they were written as scriptures, before they were declared as doctrines, they were kept as memories. If the Blessed Virgin Mary had told nobody what the Archangel Gabriel had said to her at the Annunciation, we would not know it. If Jesus Christ had told nobody that his sweat became his blood while he prayed in Gethsemane, we would not know it. Even St. Luke, writing with divine inspiration, knew about these events according as they have delivered them unto us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. 
our tradition identifies witnesses even of the descent into hell among those saints that had slept, who rose from their tombs after the resurrection of Christ, came into the holy city and appeared to many. In the upper corners of my St. Gregory um, drawing, I place two theologians of the fifth century, St. Prosper of Aquitaine and St. Vincent of Lorraine. Some of you may know enough history to know that during their earthly lives, these men were theological opponents, more so even than Saints Peter and Paul. I consider it a mark of providence that from their disputations, two beautifully complementary ideas emerged. Saint Prosper articulated the well-known maxim, legem credendi lex statuat supplicandi, or the law of worship establishes the law of belief. Worship was the first way by which the memories of those who saw, heard, and touched Jesus Christ were carried forward. Because the law of worship predates such things as the settlement of the canon of scripture or the definitions of the ecumenical councils, it is the first criterion of orthodoxy. Thus, it is the first criterion of sacred art as well. Sacred liturgy and sacred art must be concordant for they are records of the same memories. St. Vincent wrote in his Commonatoria, we hold to what has been believed always, everywhere, and by all. And these two statements are actually um, written below the saints in on the sides of that drawing. Universality, antiquity, and consensus are the marks by which a true tradition can be told from a false. Now, St. Vincent makes clear that this principle is not to be taken so literally that a single counterexample would suffice for disproof, all or at least almost all, he says. Elsewhere in the same book, he describes the true development of tradition, which he compares to the growth of a body. I quote, men when full grown have the same number of joints that they had when children, and if there be any to which mature age has given birth, these were already present in embryo, so that nothing new is produced in them when old, which was not already latent in them when children. This, then, is undoubtedly the true and legitimate rule of progress, that this the established and most beautiful order of growth, that mature age ever develops in the man those parts and forms which the wisdom of the Creator had already framed beforehand in the infant. Whereas, if the human form were changed into some shape belonging to another kind, or at any rate, if the number of its limbs were increased or decreased, the result would be that the whole body would become either a wreck or a monster, or at the least would be impaired and enfeebled." End quote. The Catholic tradition is based on real memories of real events. Something is either part of that tradition or it is not, just as something is either part of the body or is not. If it is part, this is evident in the law of worship and the agreement of the Church Fathers. These are the epistemic bridges between the age of the eyewitnesses and our own. As Catholics, we of course have the benefit of the magisterium, exercised by the successors of the apostles, our bishops. They've been given the authority to judge disputes over tradition and to bind the faithful to assent. But they do not in any way create it themselves. They receive their knowledge from existing sources. And these are sources that anyone, even an artist, can seek and find. By looking to liturgical and patristic sources, a religious artist can draw a more complete picture. He can dig deeper. 
than by looking to magisterial documents alone. He may unearth something wonderful. Um, discovering a tradition that has been lost is thrilling. It is like knocking the dirt from a buried piece of lumber and finding that it can yet raise the dead. The selection and arrangement of subject in sacred art belong to the fathers because they say the same things as the fathers and in the same manner. Patristic language, whether written or painted, is symbolic more often than it is literal. The four winged creatures that surround Jesus Christ and so many holy images are those that appeared to the prophet Ezekiel and later to St. John. They are symbols of the four evangelists. The man represents St. Matthew, whose book begins with a genealogy, a record of men. The ox is a sacrificial animal, and the Gospel of St. Luke opens with St. Zachary offering a sacrifice at the temple. The lion represents St. Mark, whose book begins with a voice crying, or roaring like a lion, if you will, in the wilderness. And the eagle was believed to gaze directly into the sun, the Gospel of St. John opens with insight into impossibly dazzling truths. In art, the man and the eagle are often given higher position. For the evangelists they represent receive their knowledge from direct witness rather than from hearsay. The apocalyptic beasts are polysemic. They represent also the life of Jesus Christ, respectively his incarnation as a man, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, he couched as a lion, who shall rouse him up, and his ascension into heaven. Furthermore, they are symbols of Christian virtues, rationality, self-sacrifice, courage, and contemplation. The Church Fathers saw everywhere in the Old Testament prefigurements of the New. I included the, the um, sacrifice of Isaac as a marginal picture to this crucifixion. The association of the two sacrifices is made again and again in liturgical texts and theological writings. The death of Eleazar Maccabee beneath a war elephant, which is the one in the middle, obviously, I drew also. As far as I can tell, this prefigurement was first noted in the Speculum Humanae Salvationis, a book of illustrated typologies from the early 14th century. But the Speculum's author did not alter the ancient tradition, rather he progressed it according to the established and most beautiful order of growth. The symbol was latent in the event from its occurrence. The manner of thought that reveals it was taught by Jesus Christ himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The crucifixion scene, as traditionally arranged, is itself full of symbolic meaning. Jesus Christ is the new Adam, whose death on the cross redeems the original sin. Just as Eve, the bride of the first Adam, came forth from his side while he slept, so the church, the bride of Christ, came forth from his side while he slept in death on the cross. I here paraphrase St. Augustine. 
The blood and water that pour from the opening in the new Adam's side represent the two most important sacraments, Eucharist and baptism. The wound is almost invariably depicted on Christ's right side, for it was from the right side that Adam's rib was taken. To the right side of the cross, I mean from Christ's perspective, our left, appear the symbols of the new covenant, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the good thief, and the sun. The moon, whose indirect light represents the old covenant, is to the left. This is a theological lesson, not a factual record of the day's astronomy. A similar lesson is taught in this image of the resurrection. Before the 13th century, the resurrection rarely appears in sacred art. The older practice was to depict the holy women visiting the tomb, for this is the story of the gospel and the mass on Easter Sunday. This composition might be denounced as a novelty, did it not illustrate an ancient exegetical tradition. Its allegorical nature is revealed by a curious detail. Emile Mal explains this, I quote, in contrast to the gospel narrative, which tells how, after the resurrection, the stone was rolled away by an angel on the morning after the Sabbath, Christ is almost invariably shown rising from a tomb from which the stone has already been removed. The old masters, ordinarily so scrupulous and so faithful to the letter, had a reason for thus uniting two distinct events. There is not the least doubt that they wished to recall the deep significance which was attached by the fathers to the removal of the stone. The stone before the tomb was in fact a symbol. It is, says the Glossa Ordinaria, the table of stone on which was written the ancient law. It is the ancient law itself. As in the Old Testament, the spirit was hidden beneath the letter, so Christ was hidden beneath the stone." End quote. When sacred art is considered symbolically, in light of the church fathers, in light of the law of worship, its permanent content appears. At least through the Middle Ages, religious artists followed the true and legitimate rule of progress articulated by St. Vincent. Mature age ever develops in the man those parts and forms which the wisdom of the Creator had already framed beforehand in the infant. Its changes were changes of clothing rather than anatomy. Those who indeed set out to change the anatomy, to spurn the traditions of the church and to invent some novelty, or to forbid all of a sudden and consider harmful what earlier generations held as sacred, were, for the most part, proud enough to leave written records of their intentions. That's convenient for me, because I thus know exactly who's influenced to stanch and reverse. I allude here, for example, to the more extreme humanists, whose determination to recreate the culture of classical antiquity led them to despise and replace the greatest art of the Middle Ages. Also to uh, certain censors of the late 16th century, who took the brief and unspecific words of the Council of Trent regarding religious art as instructions to subject the whole tradition to their critical judgment. The most influential of these, John Melanus, was blind to the symbolic order in medieval art. He condemned and forbade every traditional composition that he did not understand, which amounts to nearly all of them. Um, in modern times, many artists have made violence to tradition the very premise of their art. My task 
as a religious artist working in the present day is to heal those injuries done, to restore the impaired and enfeebled body to strength. It is a difficult and seemingly impossible task, but I know that the touch of God, the touch of his cross, the touch even of the hem of his garment can make a body whole in an instant. St. Vincent's metaphor of the body makes true progress a matter of integrity rather than of slowness. During the greatest eras of Christian art, tradition grew and developed with astonishing rapidity. The thriving that followed the invention of the Holy Cross might be considered the toddlerhood of Christian art. The era of the early Gothic might be considered its adolescence. And here again, relics of our Lord's passion were the catalyst. Annual fairs held in honor of the relics housed at the Abbey of Saint-Denis near Paris were so popular by 1137 that Suger, the abbot, noted, I quote, the crowded multitude offered so much resistance to those who strove to flock in to worship and kiss the holy relics, the nail and crown of the Lord, that no one among the countless thousands of people, because of their very density, could move a foot, that no one, because of their very congestion, could do anything but stand like a marble statue, stay benumbed, or as a last resort, scream. Moreover, the brethren, who were showing the tokens of the passion of our Lord to the visitors, had to yield to their anger and rioting, and many a time, having no place to turn, escaped with the relics through the windows." End quote. Abbot Suger resolved to enlarge and to rebuild substantially the Abbey Church. His artistic and architectural project proved apocal. Here, cross-ribbed vaults, pointed arches, and flying buttresses were first combined in a new kind of architecture, the framework upon which the arts of monumental sculpture and stained glass climbed and flourished. In the windows of the Abbey Church, the theology of light expounded by the author of the celestial hierarchy, called Dionysius, was given sensible form. Bernard of Clairvaux's argument against artistic splendor was spectacularly refuted in works such as the Great Crucifix of Saint-Denis. This stood more than 30 feet tall in the new Abbey Church. Its pedestal was adorned with figures of the four evangelists, its pillar with enamels illustrating events in the life of Jesus Christ and their prefigurements in the Old Testament. Its cross with gemstone cabochons and large pearls and a corpus worked in gold. The art here begun inspired the great cathedrals of Sens, of Chartres, Laon, Paris, Bourges, Reims, and Amiens. It spread beyond France throughout Catholic Europe. In its comprehension and exactness, it is analogous to scholastic theology. A Gothic cathedral is a summa iconographica, the codification and perfection of ancient tradition. In the 13th century appeared its finest specimens of architecture, sculpture, and stained glass. Because I specialize in small, two-dimensional works of art, I more often look to the following two centuries, in which the arts of manuscript illumination, panel painting, 
tapestry and printmaking culminated. It is in these later expressions of Gothic that I most often seek inspiration. I consider myself a revivalist, but I do not think of Gothic as a mere historical style. That would make of it a very boring thing indeed. A far-sighted and generous consideration of beautiful forms is in the true spirit of this art. Its artists may have deferred to the fathers in the selection and arrangement of subject, but in the execution that belonged to them, in the exaltation of subject, they withheld not their treasures, but offered whatever was most excellent. The Flemish painters hung oriental damasks behind their virgins, and laid oriental carpets beneath their feet. The Italians copied ornament from art that arrived by trade from Mamluk Egypt. Their saints wear garments bordered with Kufic letters, usually spelling gibberish, and radiate halos that resemble platters made by Egyptian goldsmiths. I similarly styled the halos in my own drawing of the Mass of St. Gregory, with pretend Arabic uh, calligraphy. The vestments worn by the Pope and his deacon display textile patterns more Asian than European. The pillars and altar contain Petoskey stone, a fossilized coral native to North America. I think it's the state rock of Michigan. I, I consider it a sad mischance that the spirit of Gothic art was expelled from Catholic Europe just as the age of exploration began. A few treasures of the Aztecs crossed the Atlantic Ocean in time to be admired by Albrecht Dürer, an artist who stood astride the end of the Middle Ages. Most of the treasures arrived too late. Medieval artists never saw the art of the Mughals or of the Mings. Just imagine what they would have done had they seen it. I imagine this myself. Uh, literally, I make images of it both by importing foreign art into the traditional compositions and by exporting the traditional compositions into foreign art. The style of Japanese woodblock prints has proven especially popular among my patrons, but my interest is not confined to it. Chinese painting, Indian and Persian manuscript illumination also have my curiosity. The affinity between Gothic art and the art of these other cultures was noted by the scholar Martin Lings, whom I quote. The reason why medieval art can bear comparison with oriental art as no other Western art can is undoubtedly because the medieval outlook, like that of the oriental civilizations, was intellectual. It considered this world above all as the shadow or symbol of the next, man as the shadow or symbol of God. A medieval portrait is above all a portrait of the spirit shining from behind a human veil. In other words, it is as a window opening from the earthly onto the heavenly. And while being enshrined in its own age and civilization as eminently typical of a particular period and place, it has at the same time, in virtue of this opening, something that is neither of the East nor of the West, nor of any one age more than another. I do not consider my artwork an exercise in reenactment. 
When I draw, I pretend no ignorance of those real facts unknown to artists of the 14th and 15th centuries. The existence of Japan, for example, or of microorganisms, or of uh, platypodes. I accept the principles of medieval art not because they are medieval, but because they are true. True in any time, any place, any culture. I believe that the art called Gothic answers the challenges of invention and exaltation like no other. I draw my own art from it and find it an exhaustible source, like the life-giving cross. In the 4th century, St. Paulinus of Nola recorded that the portion of the true cross kept in Jerusalem had a miraculous property. No matter how many pieces were broken from it, its size did not diminish. St. Cyril of Jerusalem compared it to the loaves and fishes that fed multitudes and left over basketfuls. John Calvin famously scoffed that if all the pieces of wood venerated as fragments of the true cross were collected together, they would make a big shipload. There are studies refuting this claim, but if the old Catholic tradition is to be believed, it might actually be correct. I doubt that the explanation would satisfy Calvin, a man determined to see fraud, but even he must admit on biblical evidence that we live in the sort of world where these things happen. Catholic tradition maintains that the virtue of a relic can be imparted through contact. Things that touch the relics of our Lord's passion or the mortal remains of the saints become relics themselves, although of a lower class. When I speak of the virtue of a relic, I do not mean a magical property that works independently of the will of God, for the working of miracles is proper to God alone but rather the quality that sets it apart from an ordinary piece of wood or bone or cloth. That distinction is real enough to terrify demons. In the Middle Ages, the faithful believed that this virtue could also be transferred optically. Where the relics were inaccessible to touch, pilgrims held up mirrors to reflect them. The mirrors were then carried homeward and treated as relics of a lower class. The Cathedral of Aachen is home to four relics of particular distinction. The dress worn by the Blessed Virgin Mary on the night of the Nativity, the holy infant's swaddling cloths, the fabric used to wrap the head of St. John the Baptist, and the loincloth worn by Jesus Christ on the cross. Since the 14th century, these have been displayed at septennial jubilees, unfurled from the gallery, connecting the cathedral's belfry to its famed octagonal dome. These, uh, these jubilees are still happening. I think the most recent one was last year. Um, in anticipation of the jubilee of 1439, a clever silversmith began to manufacture quantities of pilgrim mirrors, convex ones that could reflect the whole panorama at once. He had partners in this enterprise. All were disappointed when the jubilee was postponed due to plague. At a loss for money, the silversmith offered to share with two of his partners another idea, 
one that he had been developing in secret. They listened, doubled their investments, and set to work on the confidential endeavor. The silversmith's name was Johannes Gutenberg. The endeavor involved the making of tiny metal letters that could be arranged into texts, a viscous oil-based ink, and a press like that used by vintners and bookbinders, but adapted to the purpose of printing on paper, an art that previously had been done through manual pressure. Indirectly, the cult of relics gave Gutenberg his funding. I think that it gave him also the idea for the printing press itself. Consider the mechanism of a printing press. A matrix, which might be a wooden block with a holy picture carved in its surface, or a biblical text set in 42 lines of metal type, is inked and touched to a different object, a piece of paper. Through touch, the matrix makes the paper into something like itself. The process can be repeated with practically no exhaustion of the matrix. Anyone who's practiced printmaking knows that typeset text must run backwards. When printed, it is reversed, just like a thing reflected in a mirror. Gutenberg believed that relics can impart their virtue through contact and reflection. In the years when he conceived his printing press, this was at the forefront of his mind, as was the problem of sharing this virtue among great multitudes. We know this as a matter of history. What Gutenberg invented was a technological metaphor for pilgrimage. And in fact, many printed sheets of the 15th century were distributed as pilgrim souvenirs. They serve the same purpose as the holy oil flasks and the convex mirrors. Later scholars gave to the printed books of that century the name incunabula. How fitting this is, Incunabula is the Latin word for swaddling cloths, and the holy infant swaddling cloths were among the relics exhibited at the Akun Jubilee. I am determined to make printed works of art in the same spirit. In the coming years, I hope to publish my own illustrated editions of two popular late medieval religious block books, and eventually a book of hours. To date, I have issued relief prints only in, in um, individual sheets or broadsides. They're images based on my original drawings and typefaces. My method is not exactly Gutenberg's. I hire pressmen who operate machines much faster than his, and they transfer the images and texts from my drawings onto plates by a photochemical process. But the relief prints are nonetheless made by the same essential mechanism of contact and reflection. Fourteen of these are on display in the gallery here. These were printed in black ink only. I added the color, the golden palladium leaf, to them by hand. I hope that you will enjoy looking at them. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.